Hello, Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Seth Greenland, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Los Angeles Review of Books. David Bowie died this week. We will be doing a deep dive into his career as a musician, an artist, and a cultural icon. Cha-cha-cha changes from living to dead. Alex Espinosa is here. He is a fiction writer and professor at Cal State LA, where he is in the process of setting up a bilingual MFA program so the graduates will be able to not get jobs in two languages. <laughs> That's not fair. Uh, Alex Espinosa is a, a novelist. Uh, his first book, Stillwater Saints, is on the Inland Empire. And his second novel, The Five Acts of Diego Leon, is a about a golden age of uh, silent film Mexican heartthrob movie actor who goes back and forth across the border during the Mexican Revolution. Fantastic. And Spicoli traveled to the jungle to talk to El Chapo. That's right. Sean Penn's article for Rolling Stone is something that's been on everyone's mind this week if you are a media person. And we're going to talk about that and the journalistic ethics or, Lori, non-ethics involved? Uh, questionable ethics. We're also going to be talking about where El Chapo gets his shirts. Joining me are my usual co-hosts. She is the LARB fiction editor, Lori Weiner. Hello, Lori. Dude. And the founder of LARB, bicycle enthusiast Tom Lutz. Hello, Tom. I just got off my bike just now. David Bowie died this week. He was a protean figure who meant uh, many different things to many different people. And how did you guys experience Bowie? What was your... I have to say, I noticed there were the outpouring of grief and disbelief about Bowie was uh, was very large, and it was bigger than than you know. It surprised me how large it was. It was like when John Lennon died. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean that huge. Was, that was pre-social media. Yeah, but, yeah. For me, uh, Bowie did not resonate particularly. I feel like I can say this freely because there's there's a there's space and, and to dead. say it. I guess he's dead. He's never going to sue me, and because. There's so much love and grief out there that I feel like, okay, I can take my little compartment. You know, I never connected with him. It seemed to me like he was very much about how you look. It seemed to me to be a little bit smoke and mirrors. Um, I don't. I did not find the music that interesting. I mean, if you like play the tune of Young Americans on the piano, I think it's kind of insipid when you take away all of the the razzmatazz, good lookingness, and show business. And the great music. Okay, we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to you, Tom. And, Hang on. Lori's, but, Lori's ripping him up. Hang on. But I think, Let her finish. I think on a personal level, the reason that he did not appeal to me is that, you know, I was graduating from high school when he was, you know, becoming really big. So I was the right age to be into him. But the fluidity of identities that appealed to so many people did nothing for me because I was really looking to ground my identity. I wasn't looking to slip into other identities. I was looking to be grounded. Okay. Mm. Tom, how did you encounter well, Bowie? you know, Laurie and I have had conversations about music before, so I know that for her, melody is very important and lyrics are very important. And so I understand when you look at a lyric that says, she was a young American, young American young American, she was a young American, young American, young American, she was, a, you, you, you might think that's not a great lyric yet. 
Um, so I might I, be bored. <laughs> I understand that. But I was not, like Lori, looking for a stable identity. I was looking to get out of what I, what my, this horrible identity I felt I had. Um, so I, I liked it. But I, his kind of androgyny by um, kind of uh, glam stuff was not where I wanted to go. I was wrapped up in some kind of search for authenticity. Uh, it was a change, but it was not, a, it was not pure fluidity either. The the idea of of Bowie as inauthentic against an authentic culture to me is a fascinating one because mm-hmm. I've read a lot of pieces about him in the last few days, and somebody said he was inauthentic in contrast to say Bob Dylan, and my response was who is every bit as inauthentic as Bowie? Yeah, in fact, of because course. it's all because it's all show business. But but for me, Bowie was a uh, he, I I like the music very much because I think he's a he's just a brilliant pop machine. But at the time, I was listening to and here. Here's a confession on uh, that I may regret five minutes later. Bowie's thea- very highly theatrical androgyny. I think I found threatening on a certain level as a as a hetero guy in a way that, frankly, today I find a little embarrassing. Mm-hmm. But that gets to. Uh, the next thing I want to get into, which is the idea of Bowie as a, as a cultural figure. I think he was an, a very interesting force in the music world, right? He really kind of adopted bands. He helped make Devo, Devo. Uh, you know, somebody posted a clip from MTV uh, on Facebook today that was an interview where the head of MTV, I guess, was interviewing him mm-hmm. and, or, you know, it was a major person at MTV. And he turned the tables and he said, you know, I just want to ask you one question, which is why are there so few black artists um, being played on MTV? And he pushed him for 20 minutes on this topic. And it was, a, it was a, you know, a fascinating use of, of his star power. Yeah, it was, he just, his, his energies went in so many directions. And another quote that I found fascinating that he said was, we were in the 1970s inventing the 21st century. Which I think is dead right, and that's that's speaks to his his cultural influence. Which, when you look at a show like Transparent, which is you know winning all these awards right now, that's if not a direct outgrowth of David Bowie, a pretty indirect outgrowth of David Bowie, who who was the first person really to put androgyny on on the the public, the world stage, essentially, to the degree that he did in a way that was was really uncomfortable for a lot of people at the time. And the other thing is, and I think we might have alluded, certainly not everything he did was good. And he did, God mm, knows, so, so much stuff. And I think one of the things that is so inspirational to me about this guy is the fact that over a 50-year career, he kept really pushing the boundaries and kept doing different things and kept experimenting. Yeah, right he up to- did a lot of experimenting. Like, for instance, those two years in the 70s when he was a big fan of Adolf Hitler, that was one of his exper- experiments. What is that was- about? What are you talking about? He was. He, yeah, he took on this um, this character of the white... The thin white the dude. Thin white the thin dude, white yeah. dude. And he, and he absolutely talked about how, you know, you needed a fascist leader to get th- to get society to move in the right way. And, and he, he even mentioned Hitler. He said Hitler, you know, did some good things. I mean, I'm you just know, saying, yeah. you're trying he, on identities. He, you know, he, you're gonna you're gonna miss sometimes. I do. I do like that we. I do like that we brought the conversation back to the Nazis. I will say he was completely coked up at the time and utterly disavowed those comments. And so that's the that's the defense. What that he was Not, coked up and he disavowed the at least he disavowed the comments. I thought the 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 obvious defense was I'm doing a character. I'm doing I'm Colbert. No, no, that was not his. No, that was not what he said. I think. I think he, he was deeply, a Nazi. Unlike, well, a Nazi. He was no Mel Gibson, but I think he. Uh, <laughs> we've now we've now derailed this to where David Bowie's a Nazi, and that's all we have time for. Thanks for tuning in. 
Alex Espinosa is with us today. He is a uh, professor and a uh, author and the founder of what is going to be the first bilingual MFA program in the United States. Alex, welcome to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Is it really the first? Is it really uh, great to be here? It is. It's really <laughs> great to be here. But yeah, no, it's, it's technically not the first MFA program in the U.S., uh, UTEP has one. Okay. Um, University of Texas. Yeah, University of I Texas. believe I said the second bilingual no, program no. Yeah, in America. Did I not? <laughs> I, I, that's what I heard. <laughs> but certainly, as far as I could tell, I think it's one of the first in California. Right. And and so how does a bilingual MFA program work? You know, right now it's, it's, it's still in the sort of conceptual phase. Um, my job at um, Cal State LA that, this year is to sort of help shepherd it through. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm sort of envisioning is um, courses that are going to be offered on the Spanish side, uh, creative writing courses, workshops in Spanish, and then uh, regular creative writing courses in English offered on this side, where ultimately the two languages will find opportunities to intersect uh -huh. uh, over a short period of time. What would, what would that intersection look like? Courses in translation, possibly. Courses where uh, students are taking workshops where they're encouraged to write in more than one language, uh, like writers uh, such as Gloria Saldua did uh, with her seminal uh, Borderlands, La Frontera. You know, even Cormac McCarthy uh, has written long passages in his novels in Spanish. So I'm envisioning something like that, where there would be an opportunity for students to be encouraged to write in not just one language, but in two or three if they choose to. And the workshop would be able to support that. I think that's the most important thing. I can speak Spanish kind of the way Roberto Benigni speaks English. Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, <laughs> in and other I words, can... not at all. <laughs> well, if you're generous, you would think I, I spoke Spanish. And I can, and I can read a newspaper with, without much problem. Right. But I cannot read literary Spanish because I think part of what literary Spanish is all about is playing with syntax. Mm -hmm. Or one of the things that, that literature in Spanish tends to do is play with syntax. Exactly. And I think that that's ultimately something that I would like to encourage students to pursue, is the opportunity to, to, to play with the language and, and to mold it and to shape it in a way that sometimes English doesn't allow. Mm -hmm. I think when I read a novel in Spanish... Um, I feel like I'm sort of having to, you know, um, rejigger my brain a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can do it. My my first language was Spanish, but I learned uh, English when I was in kindergarten. Um, so slowly my Spanish was sort of weeded out of me. So I have this, you know, like a lot of us, this really strange relationship with my home language. I think more in English, um, but Spanish is certainly something that I find myself going back to whenever I speak to my older siblings I only speak to them in Spanish there's 11 of us in my family yeah I read about that <clears throat> this morning so um, and you were born here but many of your siblings were born in Mexico is that correct actually I was born in Tijuana well, okay and I was actually uh, conceived here in California uh, my mother had me in Tijuana so there's that, you know, that horrible anchor baby term. Oh. I would tell people jokingly mm. that I'm a, whatever the reverse of that is. That's Your what I am. reverse anchor baby. Your broken anchor chain. Yeah, baby. exactly. Yeah. So my mother went back to Tijuana and had me. There was some secret drama that I was never allowed to um, know about. My mother always left that part of 
her years secret. I don't mm-hmm. know why. Um, my siblings were living here. Everybody was living here in California. And my mother and I were in Tijuana for a couple of years. That's where I was Interesting. born. Interesting. And then, um, you know, I got, she got me situated, got my paperwork done. And then we crossed over when I was about two or three and settled in La Puente. I bet that you'll get to the bottom of that story in your hopefully. lifetime. My um, mother, yeah, my mother's passed away. But yeah, hopefully maybe there'll be some thread that I need to. So who's, who can tell you? About the mystery. Probably one of my older sisters. Uh-huh. My older sisters. I've just never had the courage to ask. Well, I just <laughs> want to make a public plea that they tell you. They, they tell call me. in, right? Please. I'll give them the number. Call one 555 This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner on KPFK 90.7 FM. We are talking to Alex Espinosa. Still to come, Sean Penn in the jungle. So are any of your other 10 siblings in um, a literary or academic field? Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, interesting. There's Absolutely always one. In fact. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, because, I mean, I, I grew up in, in an environment where we were working class, La Puente, you know, the 80s. Um, my father worked in a carpet mill, you know, and, and my, my mother and my two brothers actually were janitors up the street at KTLA Channel 5. And so they were working class and I didn't have my own bedroom. I slept out in the living room. So the only way that I can get privacy was if I was reading or writing. And I'm a product of the 80s. I grew up listening to the Smiths and Morrissey and, you know, David Bowie. Oh, David my, Bowie, yeah. my, my, my David Bowie story is like, he's 80s to me. And then my sisters was one that told me, you know, he, in the 70s, he used to dress up as a woman and like wear skirts and all of that. So I used to listen to all this really cool, like, 80s goth, you know, uh, music coming out of England. And I was fascinated with everything English. And my high school teachers, you know, English teachers would have us read Chaucer and Shakespeare and Poe. And so I started writing these really terrible little short stories. They were just horrible. And they were always set in England. And they were always <laughs> there were always characters named like Mrs. Farthing and you know, <laughs> Lord Chauncey and you know they would say uh, things like Dost thou love me you know and it was just they were very tortured and there were always cemeteries in fog always and and so I was convinced that like I was going to write these amazing little stories and I was going to move to England and hang out with Morrissey and that, that, oh, Alex I, I have a question about Morrissey you you were not the only a person from the Hispanic community who loves Morrissey. Yes. Morrissey is a thing in the Hispanic community. I need you to unpack that for me. I, I just, I don't know. I think it's the look that's sort of very sort of 50s, 60s, almost like greaser look. And the, the crooniness is probably yeah. a part of it. The very sort of working class identity, you know, the, the tortured, melodramatic uh, artist who's very wounded, I think, that I think a lot of us respond to. You know, certainly growing up, that was something that I felt like there was a connection there. I think I kind of felt like that music was speaking to my experience, despite the fact that he was this British dude from England. Did you have any teachers or mentors who helped you? I uh, did. The path? I did. I had one teacher. I actually almost dropped out of high school and I ended up at a continuation school, uh, which was a very scary place. Um, there was this huge English textbook that my teacher gave me that had like poetry from like Sylvia Plath and you know I read Elizabeth Bishop I read all these great 
things in that textbook in this very scary environment where there were like gang members and because it was like me and all the troublemakers right and um she was really good in terms of um pulling me aside and saying you've got I don't know how you ended up here but there's something different about you step by step she helped me uh, Nancy and I sort of immortalized her in uh, my first novel Stillwater Saints there's a school teacher named Nancy I had a teacher who gave us a creative writing assignment one day and told us we could do whatever we wanted. Mm-hmm. And I reinvented the uh, modernist epic poem. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't realize that there that it existed before. But I, I did this weird thing. It was so, it was a, so massive. It was like seven pages long, you know. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she told me that it was great. Yeah. She said she was just blown away by it. It was brilliant. Yeah. And that was the day I became a writer. Wow. And it, I learned later at a high school reunion that she told everybody in the class that. Oh, my God. So I am the complete accident of a, of a pedagogy wow. gone, gone bad. Gone, yeah. I, ha- I had a more humiliating experience, which was in seventh grade, <laughs> I wrote an essay. I forget what the assignment was, but my essay, I proved in two pages that Jesus had, in fact, lived, but that he was not God. So uh, that was my two-page essay, (laughs) and I remember my teacher laughing at it, but laughing in such a way that, you know, it wasn't completely humiliating. It was like, oh, there's something interesting there in that mess. Well, I'll tell people also that the reason why I became a writer was because in my high school, there were three tracks. It was sports, it was like auto shop and vocational, and it was trouble. Right. It was getting mm. into trouble. And so because of my disability, I can't play sports. You don't want me near a court. Um, you don't want me banging out fenders or using a jig- jigsaw because people lose fingers. It's not pretty. And I tried getting into trouble and I couldn't do that either. So all three of those things I, I couldn't do. So my teachers were like, well, what do we do with this weirdo? <laughs> and, you know, like Morrissey. Yeah, like Morrissey and, you know, like all of these people. Like that's I think that was where my fascination came from with these outsiders who couldn't f- you couldn't fit them in boxes. And so I was kind of the same way. And so I started writing. It's such a shame that no one has figured out a way to tell these kids who are in that position that that's what's happening. Because I think when you're that age and realizing how different you are and not thinking you fit in anywhere, people are just freaking out all over the world every day in that Mm -hmm. position. And yet it's the origin story of virtually every artist. Yeah, every artist. Every artist. To to get back to the MFA, uh, the bilingual MFA program Uh for a moment. MFA programs to me are are problematic on, on many levels, starting with they're turning out all these students for whom there is no real way to make a living Uh and and i wonder i would i would gently posit that in in a bilingual mfa program you're turning out people who have a way to to not make a living in two languages and (laughs) and so what happens well that's one way to think about it so so what happens to the the students who graduate having gotten this bilingual MFA? I mean, I'm serious, yeah. sort of kidding around, but also sort of a serious question. Well, I I think that it's it's I think long term it's like what short term sacrifices for the long term goal. I mean, you know, I I certainly was brought up in an environment where uh, I went to call co- if I was going to go to college, the end result was going to be a job. And I was going to be able to make a lot of money and save my family. 
you know, and 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 lift them up from poverty, right? So um, I sacrificed a lot, and for me, that gamble paid off. And in the end, I ended up selling my novel, and I ended up getting a tenure track job. And so I think that you know, the the trick is to get people to realize that they're that if they're fully committed to the craft and the art of writing, that art will find its place. Um, you will find a job doing something. Um, you have to firmly believe in that process. And I, I think I'm a product of that. I'm proof that that works. Um, I think also, na you know, nowadays, we're living in a, in a culture that is very bilingual. Um, everybody speaks more than one language. Um, now more than ever, I think, the art of translation, the art of being able to bounce between one language and the other is absolutely crucial if we're to survive. Borders are becoming more and more erased, despite the fact that Donald Trump thinks that he's convinced he can build a wall <laughs> to save us from the evil Mexicans. That's not going to work. And, and I think that we have to start educating our artists and our writers to realize that their work can cross those borders. So, uh, you know... It, is that are there jobs for for people in creative writing or bilingual? You know, I don't know, but I mean, if we distill it, then what about a PhD in English? Like, how many PhDs in English? Exactly. You know, yeah. how many how many degrees in in vocational this or how many? Like, what field is there demand? Yeah, when I, you come right down to it. Absolutely, I want to push back on the whole concept that what you what you're going to do in in higher education is job training. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just, that, that is a, that's a really sad state of affairs when one of our, one of our country's great novelists and, and, <laughs> and, and, and holder and, of an MFA and, and, and holder yeah, of an MFA and, and, uh, TV writers is going to, is going to complain that, that education should be more vocationally oriented. I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm having a discussion. <laughs> I want to be very no, clear on that. And these actually. are good, these are good things to talk and, about. And, and you're doing something entirely new. And it's, it's interesting to me to hear you discuss what's going to happen with the people who go through the program. Alex Espinosa, thanks for coming on the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you so much for having me. This is Seth Greenland. I'm here with Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 90.7 KPFK-FM. John Penn uh, went crawling through the jungles of Mexico recently to interview El Chapo, uh, and he published the results in a 10,000-word piece in Rolling Stone. Some people got upset with the uh, journalistic ethics involved. Lori, do you want to uh, give us a little background about that? Uh, sure. Well, the, the piece that he writes opens with a quote from Montaigne saying, the laws of conscience, which we pretend to be derived from nature, proceed from custom. And the reason he opens with that quote is because he's saying, I know that you think it was wrong of me to do this interview, but maybe you're wrong. Maybe your idea of morality and, and how we shouldn't, you know, go interview someone who's done a horrible thing. I mean, come on, I'm an actor. I'm an artist. I wanted to know what he was thinking. It, it's a viable question. But the thing is that he spends the first 14 graphs talking about the morality of the of doing the interview. Then he does the interview, which is really short. It's a Q&A and it's not very interesting. And then he winds up saying, talking again about the morality of it. Interesting. So, and then everybody falls for it because they start talking about the morality of, the, of him doing the piece. 
Which is not an uninteresting topic. Which is why we're discussing it right now. <laughs> Lori, as, as a journalist of wide repute, how did it hit you? Well, thank you. Um, I think <laughs> that uh, obviously the journalistic responsibility was not on Sean Penn. It was on the editor of Rolling Stone, Jan Venner. And um, he agreed to—this is, is the big bugaboo for me. Wenner agreed to have El Chapo— read the article before they published it. Um, now, the reason that's a huge no-no, it might not seem like a big thing. Like, in fact, in this case, they make a point of saying right at the top that El Chapo didn't require any changes in the piece. But when you know that the subject of your piece is going to be reading it, you write it very differently. And that's why it is a complete no-no. And so you make an exception in this case, because why? Because this is an extremely rare circumstance, and everyone's going to be reading this and talking about it, so it's going to bring a lot of attention to Rolling Stone, which it did. So we'll let the, we'll let the journalistic ethic go out the window for this piece, because it's worth it. Well, I think that there's something about Sean Penn's Hollywood stardom that does have everything to do with this. That is, he is used to a journalistic world in which you put conditions on the interview you and you ask for um you know you ask you ask to see the interview before it gets published and you 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 know uh i've noticed as we've set up interviews with movie stars who have written books that they have a very different notion of what j journalism is and they have a very different notion of what the conversation between a press agent and a, and a and a publisher is. Well, the whole thing strikes me kind of as a Billy Wilder movie in a way because, first of all, it's funny to me that we're talking about journalistic <laughs> ethics because Sean Penn's not a journalist. So what I think we need to get into here is the celebrity axis that uh, really made this thing happen because he wasn't talking to Anderson Cooper there in his jungle hut. He was talking to a movie star. So the whole thing on a certain level has, has, a, has a ludicrousness to it that I find wildly appealing mm -hmm. personally. Definitely. And, and I find the whole conversation about ethics really misses the point mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah, I think you have to write a novel about let's, this situation. Let's do, no, let's do a film of it and do it in black and white and set it in the 40s. Well, isn't it a little <laughs> bit like an ace in the hole yeah, kind exactly, of a, a yeah. thing? I mean, yeah, it's a yeah. spectacle yeah. more than it is some kind of journalistic feat. And I think deeply comedic. And also, the one question I would have liked to ask El Chapo, if it had been me, is where do you get those shirts? I know. Fabulous. <laughs> that blue. Wow. <laughs> Um, also, uh, you know, it wasn't a horribly written piece. A lot of people like to, you know, make fun of it because you want to make fun of somebody who can't do what you do or whatever. Um, and it wasn't a horribly written piece. It had some good things in it, actually. But there were a couple of sentences that I was like, really? Like, this was short sentence. She nervously offered her address. But with the gypsy movements of an actress, the flowers did not find her. I mean, it's just like, how easy would that have been to fix? So that did, I don't get at did all. Did Sean Penn insist against the editor's advice that that sentence I, remain the way it is? I had to. I think we should make an offer to Sean Penn to see if he wants to write for LARP. Yeah, he could interview, who should we send him after? El Baghdadi. Yeah. I, I think this is a great idea. I think we should have him interview Barbara Streisand. Thanks to Alex Espinosa. Thanks to our producer in moral conscience, Jerry Gorham. Our crack production assistant, Ernesto Aureliano. Czar of scheduling, Aviva de Kornfeld. And of course, the irreplaceable Sid Biggs. 
We couldn't do this show without the generosity of the Goldhirsch Foundation, and as always, we thank them. Find us on the web at www.lareviewofbooks.org. Download us on iTunes. Better yet, give us a rating. Five stars is good. You can write a review, something like, Lori is charming. I am obsessed with Oscar Hammerstein, too. I love Tom. When will he write another book? And as for Seth Greenland, dot, 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 you can fill that part in yourself. For Tom Lutz and Lori Weiner, this is Seth Greenland. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We will see you next week. When we're bringing B.J. Novak in. B.J. Novak has said he will come back. Lori, do you believe that? I thought we were, I thought that was kaput, that whole gig. He begged. <laughs>